You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. I'm Rick Kleffel, and welcome to the Agony Column podcast. Today's podcast is a special two-part interview with Cory Doctorow. The first interview took place in 2003 in his office at the Electronic Frontier Foundation in San Francisco, California. And now, Cory Doctorow in 2003. Today we're talking with science fiction writer and futurist Cory Doctorow, whose first novel is Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom. He's the author of numerous short stories, including Jury Service, co-authored with Charlie Strauss. He's the editor of the popular weblog BoingBoing.net and the outreach coordinator for the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Welcome to Fine Print, Cory. Thank you. Your new novel, Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, is set in a future that's a good deal more, top- more utopian than many societies portrayed by recent science fiction writers. That's true. Um, I think that um, it's, it's a response to a fundamentally utopian element of um, technological advance in the last 10 years, which is the uh, advent of non-rivalrous or non-scarce goods. Um, we've never really had an economy to speak of in goods that um, you don't consume, but rather reproduce. So in other words, uh, if I if I eat your hamburger, you, there's one less hamburger in the world. But if I download your MP3, there's actually one more MP3 in the world. This is a fundamentally optimistic situation. Um, traditionally, economists have concerned themselves with scarcity and with managing scarcity and, and with the assumption that valuable goods get more scarce as their value goes up. Um, a world in which valuable goods become less scarce as they're consumed is uh, a fairly utopian vision. Uh, Like a lot of science fiction writers, I wasn't particularly interested in trying to predict the future, but rather more interested in holding up a kind of warped mirror to the present. Now, tell the listeners a bit about what cyberpunk fiction is, how it inspired you, and how you jumped from the rather gritty and downbeat feel of cyberpunk to your own sunny future. Um... Well, you know, it's important to point out the future wasn't entirely sunny in this book, but um, I guess cyberpunk is best uh, described as a literary movement from the mid-1980s that was founded by writers like William Gibson and Bruce Sterling. And cyberpunk has at its core um, a kind of metaphor about the internet and about network technologies, that they would be simultaneously a uh, technology of control and a technology of liberation, uh, probably best uh, described in Gibson's famous quote, the street finds its own use for things, right? So, you know, it, it, it took this traditional, almost hackneyed vision of a future where computers and network technology are used as a tool of ubiquitous surveillance and control and turned it on its head and said, well, this may or may not be true, but remember that general purpose tools are indeed general purpose and they can be turned to any use. And imagine what the countercultures of the world will do with these amazing and flexible, and in some ways universal tools that, uh, like computers and the internet. Um, I think that uh, the, the writers of the cyberpunk era were in large part writing about the internet and computers as metaphors. Uh, Gibson certainly is explicit about this when, you, when he says, I wrote Neuromancer on a manual typewriter and I wasn't talking about the internet. When I coined the word cyberspace, I was talking about the place where phone conversation takes place. I was talking about the place where the bodies of video gamers seem to want to go as they played console games and thrust their chests towards the screen. Um, he was writing about computers as a metaphor and a metaphor for a kind of 
all-powerful technology that could be used, again, to hold that warped mirror up to the present and describe the world that he saw unfolding around him. And I think that the current generation of writers, at least the ones that I'm interested in and the one that I count myself as part of, um, is largely com- computer savvy. Uh, to, to you know, I would even call them hackers. Um, Charlie Strauss, Carl Schrader, Peter Watts, although he's not a programmer, he's a PhD in microbiology, um, and, and on and on. There are, there are writers all around the world, actually mostly outside of the United States, writing science fiction that's informed by a deep understanding of both computers and the internet. Um, and computers are no longer metaphorical, they're, they're mimetic, they're realistic. And so what I think characterizes the new movement best is uh, um, a notion that the more you know about computers, the more like a deus ex machina they seem, the more uh, infinitely powerful, flexible, and robust they seem. And so the more they come to be perceived as a tool of transcendence. Um, you know, there's this notion of the singularity that a science fiction writer named Werner Vinge coined, which is uh, the time at which human intelligence becomes tied to computers, um, because human beings and computers become intermeshed in some way, and thereafter grows at the same rate that the, that the speed of computation is growing. And we become non-human at that point. We have a break with traditional history. It's a singularity like the edge of a black hole, beyond which nothing is predictable about the way that the human race will exist. This is like the notion put forth in Arthur C. Clarke's Childhood at its End, where a race comes to Earth and offers to have us join the universal overmind. You mean the one where, uh, I think I know what Satan you mean. Satan shows up. Satan shows up at the end. Yes. I guess so. Well, I mean, that's a, that's a kind of singularity as well. I, you know, the science fiction has often concerned itself with the moment at which human history breaks, right? The, the moment at which human history becomes disjoint. Because there is at least a conceit that human history is a story of, of linear progress, that we if it's it's kind of like a ride at Epcot Center, right? You've got this, you've got a car on a track, and you you start in the Stone Age, and you see the first wheel, and then fire, and then we fast forward to Greece, and we have um, uh, so, you know geometry, and then Rome burns, and the roads are destroyed, and then Egypt, and then uh, the Renaissance, and then the dawn of the industrial age and then the present day and then this kind of um, hyper-futuristic, almost hackneyed, uh, better living through chemistry uh, tomorrow where everything's got jet fin, uh, everything's got jet packs and, and tail fins, a kind of Jetsons future. And there's this notion that, that human history is kind of linear and that, you know, yesterday we had the telegraph and then we had the radio and then we had the television and now we have the internet and tomorrow we'll have the video phone and then we'll have the 3D phone and then we'll have the teleporter and we'll be human all the way through that. And I think that, in fact, history is a lot more disjoint. I think that, for example, things like literacy are singularities in human history, that a literate human being literally thinks differently has and, and sees the world differently, so differently, in fact, that, that he or she has very little to discuss with a pre-literate human being, not an illiter- illiterate human being, but a human being from before the, the dawn of literacy, um, and, and is in some ways a different species. Oh, that's interesting. Technology as changing our species. Now, your novel is set in the post-death, post-scarcity world. Could you tell us the details of the Bitchin Society? So, the Bitchin Society, I, I mean, the, the term, obviously, is kind of a play on the good society, right? It, it's, it's kind of, you know, if surfer dudes and, and wild-ass, you know, gray hat hackers 
were in charge of social reform, you wouldn't get a good society. You'd get a bitch in society. And, and um, the notion of the bitch in society is a world in which um, a kind of offstage, off you know, do you know Clark's law, Arthur C. Clark said any technology that's sufficiently advanced is indistinguishable from magic. So these kind of Clark's law technologies have eliminated scarcity, have eliminated death. Um, death is eliminated by the kind of brute force expedient of um, taking regular backups of your brain. Uh, or of your consciousness. Um, I, I don't really get much into the mind-body duality there, but taking backups of, of, of the part of you that's you, and when you die, or when you become ill in a way that the uh, machineries of medicine can't cope with, you just grow a new body and decant your consciousness into it and retire the old one. And of course, this is uh, um, a, uh, a quite a... Uh, uh, philosophical conundrum for a number of people, although that number dwindles because, frankly, if you can't get your head around the idea that um, you can abandon your body and move into a new one, you'll die, right? <laughs> it's, 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 it's just this kind of very brutal, very fast Darwinianism. The people who don't want to be immortal don't last as long, right? right. Um, and so the people who do want to be immortal live on. So we have these two kind of magical technologies. And then overlaid on that is an economy built around managing those few resources that are still scarce. If you can imagine traditional economics as being centered around the tragedy of the commons, the idea that if you have a valuable resource that's unmanaged, people will continue to use it until it's depleted entirely. People will use it selfishly um, based on, you know, the old notion of the English commons where everyone would graze their sheep and a rational shepherd would graze his sheep to the point that all the grass was gone because if he didn't do it, the next person along would. And, and so he needed to keep his sheep fat. We have instead a commons where the sheep shit grass, where the more you graze, <laughs> the more commons you get. And then there are these kind of, um, so everything is kind of dissolved into the slurry of non-scarce goods, but there are these kind of icebergs in the slurry, things that steadfastly reserve, refuse to be dissolved. And those are things like physical places, um, in particular Disney World. There really is one Disney World. Um, even if you were to duplicate Disney World, as has been done, uh, in fact, Disney World is in some ways a duplicate of, of Disneyland in California, um, you still don't have the original artifact. It is in some way less and certainly different than the original artifact. And so you need to manage that resource because it's scarce. There are more people who wish to partake of it than it can accommodate. And that is accomplished by means of a reputation currency called woofy, um, which is a silly kind of Rudy Rucker word that I made up. Um, and, and, you know, part of the point of these kind of silly words like woofy and bitch in society and so on is to, is to point up the fact that, that this is kind of metaphor. It's, 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 uh, it's meant to be not satirical, but at least lighthearted and, and not a rigorous exercise in futurism. Um, and so woofy is the measure of how much respect one person has for another. And so if I know you directly and I formed an opinion about you, this magical Clark's Law technology knows what that opinion is. And when I see you, it can tell me how I feel about you. And that's, of course, not very useful because presumably I already know how I feel about you. However, if I meet someone I've never met before that you have some esteem for, it can tell me with some uh, probability how I probably feel about that person based on your feeling about them and based on my feeling about you. And so Woofy determines who gets what when it comes to scarce resource. And so the way that you find out whether or not you're the person who's running Disney World is by stepping in and trying to operate the rides. And if the guests have enough Woofy for you, 
that they stand in the lines where you tell them to. And if the people who are part of the apparatus of running the park uh, afford you the authority to run it, then in fact you're running it. It in some ways mirrors the kind of um, uh, economy that we have built around currency, which is in some ways supposed to be reflective of how productive, functional, respected, in esteem you are. But it's it's a lot. It's it's simultaneously purer and dirtier and far more idiosyncratic because there's also left-handed woofy, which is how people that I dislike feel about you, um, and and I can find out that uh, it's it's a rare person who in this society is, has both left-handed and right-handed woofy because it's, it's far more likely that the friend of your, of your enemy is, is your enemy. So um, one of the things that I wanted to talk about in this book and that I, I try to get at is that while this seems utopic, it's also extremely normative in a way that the internet disrupts social norms, I think for the better. I think that, um, you know, at the dawn of the internet uh, age, in, in the early 90s, uh, and not the dawn of the internet, obviously, but the dawn of the commercial internet, the public internet, we had the series of ads from AT&T, the you will ads. Have you ever tucked your child in from 3,000 miles away? You will. And it would show a video phone with a kind of smart uh, woman in a, in a kind of business haircut and a, and a, and a suit um, on, appearing on a screen at the foot of a little girl's bed and uh, clearly tucking her in from 3,000 miles away. And in fact, the reverse is true. The internet doesn't reinforce social norms. It reinforces social deviance. Um, normative pressure comes from being around people who exert approval or disapproval or who put things in your way or clear your path depending on how closely you adhere to the norm. If you one day decided to wear your underwear on your head, there wouldn't be any law that would stop you from doing it, but there's a strong normative pressure. People would point and stare and children would ask you questions and restaurateurs would throw you out and so on and so on and so on. But if you wanted to wear your, your underwear on your head on the internet, you could go hang out in alt underwear on my head with the 12 other people who believe that wearing underwear on their head is a good idea. And you'd have this amazing uh, normative pressure to be deviant. But in a reputation society where your ability to lay your hands on the kind of crackerjack prize resources in the society, the, these, these icebergs that won't dissolve under the onslaught of non-scarcity, uh, is directly related to your ability not to upset people. Then you have this kind of world of milk toasts, right, who, who live to cooperate and to never take the kind of risks that would alienate their peers or alienate even strangers. And so you have a world of kind of, you know, gentle, non-risk-taking individuals. And I think that, that there is an element of truth to that. I think that reputation societies aren't all sweetness and light. I think that, that eventually you arrive in a kind of static uh, 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 balance of power where you realize that um, the more you venture and the more you gain, the more you also lose. And you, you come up with a kind of optimal strategy of venturing essentially nothing. My name is Rick Kleffel, and we're here with Fine Print with Corey Doctorow. Corey, the protagonist in your novel, Jules, is enamored of the old-time feel of the Disney rides, the technology that seems low-tech to us even today. Tell us about the contrast between what Jules likes and the world in which Jules lives, how those two mesh together. So there is, as we approach one singularity or another, and I don't believe in the capital S singularity where all human history ceases, but I think that we there, there are a series of, of singularities like firecrackers, like literacy, like, like um, uh, the machine age, like aviation, like communication at a distance. I think each of these changes what it means to be a human. And there is always, I think, uh, uh, quite 
um, write, quite rightly, a great deal of anxiety about losing your humanity, about ceasing to be human. Um, I, and I, I think that you do, in some way, cease to be human when you pass through one of these singularities. You cease to be the kind of human that the generations that preceded you were. And so Jules uh, is embedded in a society where increasingly your senses and your meat, the, the body that is you, and your identity are separable. It's a kind of dualist, uh, extremely extreme dualist uh, nightmare or, or utopia. Um, and the idea that the people who are, who are uh, usurping his authority in the park, Jules is a, uh, Julius is a, is a, uh, works for a, um, an ad hoc, a group of, of, of ad hoc uh, uh, co- adherents who are managing the part of Disney World in which the Haunted Mansion and the Hall of the Presidents is. And they are faced with competition from a group that wishes to replace these very, you know, large, clanking Rube Goldberg rides that are inherently tactile and sensory. In fact, that the great innovation, of course, of the Imagineers was multi-sensory input, you know, sound and, and, and touch and movement and smell and, and so on and so on. They're replacing these things with things that talk directly to your brain. And his point is that you can experience the new rides, the sim rides that they're building, which in, in some ways are a metaphor for the kind of IMAX sims that we see now, like the, um, the, the Body Wars and Star Tours rides that are uh, essentially white boxes on articulated servos that you go in and they screen a movie and move the box in time with the movie, and that is the ride, right? And you can make it into a different ride by changing the movie and changing the instructions for the servos. Um, he, he sees these as post-human or transhuman in a way that makes him extremely uncomfortable and rightly so because you can experience these not only can you experience these just as well on your living room couch as you can in Disney World but you can experience these just as well without a body as you can with right and that's really transhuman right it's you cease to be meat when when you cease to experience through your meat and there is a great deal of what it means to be human embedded not, uh, below our brainstem, right? Um, if you've ever, if you've ever uh, had a, a tomcat neutered, you'll understand that personality <laughs> is in large part below the brainstem. And, you know, there is this kind of reductionist um, transhuman line that says, well, you know, if I cut off your finger, would you be the same person? Well, what if I replaced your arm? Well, what if your legs were gone too? And what if you were just a torso? Well, what if you were a head in a jar? When do you stop being human? You know, the meat isn't you. But in fact, you are a different person if you cut your arm off. Of course you're a different person if you cut your arm off. You go and you ask someone who's unexpectedly had their arm removed by a threshing machine if they feel like they weren't changed by the experience. You become a different person when you lose your meat. Yes, well, your guitar playing days are over at least. Certainly, yeah. Doctor, will I ever play the violin again? In your post-death society, people are able to back themselves up and restore themselves. Could you talk about how present-day computer terminology has helped you invent your future? Well, I think that um, our our technology always informs the metaphors by which we view ourselves. I mean, you have in the in the at the dawn of the industrial age, you have this whole series of mechanistic deterministic uh, um, metaphors for the way that the world worked. You know, Mark Twain believed that the whole the whole universe was was a kind of billiard table where every atom was a was a ball, and that the first mover, God, set them all in motion when he hit the cue ball, and that everything since was preordained. And this was a kind of reflection of uh, a world in which 
things were increasingly automated and which things were believed to be deterministic and repeatable, um, something that's reflected in the scientific method, which came into vogue in that, in that period as well. Um, today, we have an information society suite of metaphors by which we attempt to understand and decode our world. We have the idea that intelligence is information, for example. We have the idea that information and consciousness are sides of the same coin and that understanding and parsing are, are really just the same activity at different levels of complexity. Um, backing up and restoring is another one of these metaphors. Um, it, it's, it comes both from my experience as a, I, I was a systems administrator for some years, right? And, and certainly I've always been very paranoid about losing my dad. I've used computers all my life. My father was a computer scientist. So, you know, I, I, I got my first PC when I was about eight years old in 1979. And I still have the files from that PC. They were transferred from five and a half, in, or five and a quarter inch floppies to three and a half inch floppies to zip cartridges to a hard drive to the next hard drive and the next. And there's this kind of chain of success that ends up with this 12-inch uh, uh, power book sitting on my desk um, that contains all the files I've ever touched since I was eight years old. And backing up and restoring has been a ritual in my life since uh, as long as I can remember. But it also comes from video games where save game before experiment is a kind of uh, a mantra that every gamer learns, right? Before you see what happens if you open that trapdoor, you save your game. Because if it turns out that what happens when you open that trapdoor is that poison gas is released and your character dies, you don't want to have to go back through all the stuff that you did to get to the trapdoor. And so saving and restoring games and saving and restoring games at different points is um, a remarkable way at looking at consciousness. It, it actually suggests that we're prepared to believe that our consciousness is disjoint, that we're not the same person that we were when we went to sleep, that we're not the same person we were five years ago, that we're not the same person we were when we were born, that in some ways we are disjoint with all of the selves we've been. Boy, that's fantastic. Corey, can you tell us what to expect next from you? Um, so I have a collection of short stories coming. Uh, in September from Four, Four Walls, Eight Windows Press in New York, and it's called A Place So Foreign and Eight More, Nine Short Stories. Um, after that, in January, I've got another novel called Eastern Standard Tribe. Um, Eastern Standard Tribe is a more present-day story set just a few years in the future about uh, Kabbalistic societies of management consultants who uh, are bound together by the fact that they all rise and sleep on New York time, no matter where they are in the world, which is kind of a reflection of... Um, uh, a situation that we live in today where, where the death of distance has stubbornly refused to kill uh, sunset and sunrise, right? The fact that, the fact that we are both uh, in, in instantaneous conversation, no matter where we are in the world, can't change the fact that the sun rises and sets at different times and our circadians are out of sync. And syncing your circadians with people who are quite distance, distant from you extracts a terrible penalty because you are no longer embedded in the social milieu of your re local region and all of your contact becomes electronic and i think that it would drive you slightly mad and eastern standard tribe is a kind of uh intrigue story about these people running around sabotaging and and uh, uh also shoring up each other's interests and and getting each other thrown in mental institutions and doing all kinds of crazy things and it's a fun book thank you very much we've been speaking with cory doctorow his newest novel is down and out in the magic kingdom Thank you very much, Corey. It was my pleasure. The second part of this interview was conducted at the Singularity Symposium at Stanford in 2006, and now Corey Doctorow in 2006. We're speaking with Corey Doctorow at the Singularity Summit. Corey, tell us a little bit about where you first encountered the Singularity and how it's 
informed both your fiction and your fact? You know, I couldn't even tell you where I first encountered the singularity. It was probably in a Werner Vinge essay or something, but it's one of those ideas that, that floats around a lot in science fiction. Um, Charlie Strauss and I have written a, some stories uh, that kind of play with the idea of singularity. Uh, th there's um, an interesting uh, uh, approach to the singularity, which is the singularity as literary device that's different from the approach to singularity as the singularity as uh, impending future. Um, science fiction writers are always writing about the present, and uh, singularity, even if it never comes to pass, singularity, I think, reflects our own panic about our ability to go on absorbing technological change. Tell us a little bit about how the spectrum we're seeing at this conference starts in hardcore science fact and stretches all the way to science fiction, but there's a blur in that spectrum. Tell us a little bit about the important important part that science fiction, the fiction aspect plays, and how it gets blurred all the way over into the science fact. Well, science fiction is, as I say, about the present. Um, but there are a lot of people who take it and run with it and try to make it into the future. Uh, you know, particularly we've seen this with Neil Stevenson and, and William Gibson as contemporary examples. People want to make cyberspace, people want to make the metaverse. Um, but even before them, people wanted to make space exploration, people wanted to make rocketry. I think the truest thing that science fiction has observed in recent times is that the straight finds its own uses for things, William Gibson's concept. And that uh, as, as um, science and technology practitioners, we look to science fiction, which is after all only a metaphor and, and necessarily very stripped down, and we try to make it into reality. And where the reality meets the road, it gets a lot messier. Instead of getting uh, space exploration as we understand it, we end up with um, uh, a million applications for satellites and, and satellite-based positioning systems, spy satellites, and, and satellite-based uh, communications that are um, much more quotidian and yet mu much more profoundly disruptive in some ways than a mere space exploration project undertaken by governments might be. And so how do you see this playing out in the realm of the singularity? Well, in the realm of the singularity is you have people who are sitting here saying, well, let us prepare for a nanotechnology, ubiquitous computation, utility fog future. I think it's, it's um, that, that the real interesting fights are going to be things like what kind of, um, uh, what kind of uh, um, uh, labor practices will change as a result of the uh, ubiquity of, of carbon nanotubes? Will we, will we have you know, sweatshops the way that we do for semiconductors arriving out of uh, a semiconductor board assembly the way, uh, with, with uh, carbon nanotubes? What will that do to global capital? What will that do to global labor markets? That much more complicated, you know, uh, uh, world-like view of, of singularity as opposed to kind of fiction-like view of singularity where you strip down the world into a few key elements that are necessary to make the point you want to make. You've been speaking with Cory Doctorow. Thanks, Cory. Not at all. My pleasure. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.